If you all are ready, I give you Martyr. Okay. Hello, family. Good afternoon. I, I always love when they put me after lunch. What you really need is a nap. You don't, you don't need someone talking at you. So I'm very sorry that I was too sick to be here last uh, year. Um, I'm honored to have been invited to present to all of you. I'm humbled that um, I can present anything to all of you with the kind of brain power and expertise that is here. Um, and a lot of what I'm going to say you probably know, but um, it's coming from uh, a leadership, uh, not only my own experience as a clinician and as a recovering person, and uh, but also as a social researcher and then the literature. So you're going to get uh, uh, to unpack some of the things that in the folklore of our uh, addiction um, treatment and in addiction theory and in all of the work that we do that some of us know, some of us repeat, but hopefully we'll validate some things. I learned some things as I was doing this. So I am Marta Miranda Straub, and I'm a 44-year overnight success. This is, <laughs> this is my 44th year um, as a social worker, clinician, uh, was at Eastern Kentucky University for 17 years doing a lot of research and uh, a lot of gender justice work, uh, led the women and gender studies there and was the Dean of Multicultural Student Affairs. And this amazing job came up in Louisville uh, to run the Center for Women and Families, which is a huge nonprofit, domestic violence, sexual assault. And uh, although I was 10-year brown, a woman, and 37 years old, I said, I got to go for that. Uh, if it, I was my mentee, I would have said, don't you dare, don't you dare. But I did, and uh, it whipped my butt. I did it for eight years. It was the hardest job I ever had. And I retired um, this last year and reopened my consulting practice. And now I call this rewirement. So i like you all to start thinking about, those of you who are not mid-career or, or young, to start thinking about what's, what's that last tango? going to look like. So you are part of my last tango and my spiritual candy bar for the week. So <laughs> really excited uh, to be with all of you here. So um, we, the clicker doesn't work. Um, but the name of this, this uh, presentation is uh, the dynamics of addiction and recovery within the family system. And some of the things that I'm going to touch on today is uh, the dynamics of both addiction and recovery. And I use a systems perspective. A lot of us in the field do that, not just social work, but um, um, in regards to doing cognitive work and family therapy, really looking at the factors that increase the risk for addictions and also increase our chances for long-term recovery. And then some strategies to facilitate systems change uh, within families and recovery. I hope that you will be able to have an expanded understanding um, of, from the conference in general, but if I can add a grain of salt to that, I would be honored. I am very biased in what I choose to present. Um, I give you the good news, everybody else is biased. We choose what we want to learn about. We choose what puts fire in our belly. We choose what we need to learn more about. And I always say, um, I teach what I need to learn the most, and I am my worst student. <laughs> I teach what I need to learn the most, and I am my worst students. So the first introduction for me before I was in recovery 
was a whole generic, genetic piece to addictions and alcohol as I was uh, going through my graduate work. And the whole person and environment piece, that ecological perspective that is not just the individual, but it's everything that surrounds us. Um, and in addition to that, uh, got trained and learned and practiced uh, family uh, theory systems with families uh, who had severe uh, history of sexual assault, domestic violence, uh, child abuse, uh, and addictions for 35 years. And for the last 10, working with impaired professionals, professionals in the medical field, um, in nurses, physicians, a lot of pharmacists, and a lot of social workers who became impaired um, while they were practicing, and uh, they were in an impaired professionals program, and I had the honor to sit with them uh, to work on recovery because a lot of them needed recovery, and uh, I was uh, honored to be part of that. And then the whole piece around cognitive theory and uh, the fact that you have to change your thoughts in order for your feelings to follow. Um, if you wait for your feelings, if you wait for you, for you to feel enough worth to not put up with crap from other people, it's never going to happen. It doesn't happen. You've got to act as if. And what I'm always amazed is how the program has all this knowledge and wisdom right in there that we, it takes us four, six, seven years of graduate school to learn. Uh, so the reality is that whatever emotions you're having that are not comfortable, your clients are having that are not comfortable or that are self-defeating or sabotages us, uh, those emotions are not going to change until the behavior changes. It's a lot easier to change behavior than to change emotions. So that's why we behave better than we feel and we act as if there's actually cognitive theory to validate that. It actually works. So I don't necessarily feel very generous, but if I practice being generous, I might feel better about myself. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we, we all know that. So that's part of where that comes from. Um, and um, a psycho-spiritual perspective. Um, I really did a lot of work on Jungian dream work and a lot of work around uh, meditation with mindfulness practice. Um, and um, that seemed to be a really good field, not just to learn and work with my clients and myself. And, you know, the title of this should be My Client Myself. <laughs> right? My client, myself. Uh, this whole paradigm of that we are the experts, right? And we're here with this magic bullet. Even the medical model is changing. That came from a medical model. We're going to give you medicine. We're now talking very differently about how we work with each other. And certainly in my field of social work and sociology um, and clinical work, as well as social research, it has shifted for a long time that Clients are the experts of their experience. We have skills, we have knowledge, we have degrees. However, how that client is going to apply that and how it's going to be successful for them needs, needs them. We don't know what that is. So what might work for someone doesn't work for somebody else. So here's the research. Um, we began by doing brain studies. How many of you remember the brain studies? This is a little flash from the past. Anybody know about the brain studies? Raise your hand and I won't bother you with a lot of it. Not a lot of you. Oh, my God, this stuff blew my mind. It just blew my mind. Um, one of the first research studies that I learned about was where they actually took um, 
homeless alcoholics, um, not especially these days, uh, not everybody who's homeless is an alcoholic. But at that time, we thought that everybody that was homeless was an alcoholic. And there was some research done on those who died, and they actually looked at the brain of those who died who were chronic alcoholics, most of them homeless, dying in city hospitals uh, or on the street. And they found this incredible spot in the alcoholic's brain that um, they had that other people who are not alcoholics, they did not have. So some of your physicians may, may have a better grasp than I do on this, but I'm still amazed by it. And what they found that is in our brain, something happens when we drink alcohol. It actually has the similar components as an opiate. So it's, it's not just the addiction to the alcohol and the sugar. is that our brain begins to metabolize it differently, and it actually stores it similar to an opiate. That was the first blow-your-mind study that I ever read, and it's old. I think it was 1950s. Then um, we started to look at twin studies, and this was done uh, in Europe. And what happened was children who were twins but were separated at birth were studied over like 19 to 20 years. And those who came from alcoholic families, guess what? 40% chance of alcoholism, the same as what the research tells us today, 37 to 40%. Then the adult children of alcoholic movement came in. How many of you remember that? Right? And do you remember the backlash in AA about those meetings? Or in AA, what do you remember? We're whining. We're finding out problems that don't make any difference. You don't need a therapist. Just work your steps. Remember that? How many of you heard that? I'm old, right? I, I, you know, I'm seasoned. I'm seasoned. So there was this incredible backlash, and part of it was really justified. There were lots of, of us therapists, um, and I don't think he's in business anymore. Hopefully he won't sue me. But there was a man named John Bradshaw. How many of you? Do you remember John Bradshaw? You all may have a really good experience with John Bradshaw, but I was a therapist. And all of us will call each other and say, Bradshaw is coming to town. What that meant, that all our clients were going to decompensate. <laughs> they were all going to decompensate because John, like when I'm a consultant, you come in, do you do a great job, and then you leave, and the mess is yours to clean up, right? Well, John was wonderful about doing a lot of deep work with people who were not necessarily ready, who did not have the coping skills to manage it, who did not have a support system to deal with it. And uh, therefore, everybody thought they had a great weekend. They got into this deep hole, and then they couldn't get out. So it was up to us to send out the ropes and start doing the management and bring them back up so that they can function. That happened a lot in ACOA. That happened a lot in some of the other meetings, which is people stop looking at the solution um, and only started diving down. And I found that what's important is to have a real tension between both. I find that long-term recovery needs, for a lot of us, some deeper work in other areas, along with the program. That's for some of us, the program alone gives us the safety net to do that work and the support to do that work. And for some of us, doing that work without a support system like AA or NA, or Al-Anon, we don't have a chance 
of not being re-traumatized. Does that make sense? We like to put things in boxes, and this is one that doesn't fit in a box. It's both. is and or for a lot of folks. So we found that out. We also found out that um, we also started to the research when the, the, we began to pay attention to drugs other than alcohol. We, the research was really separate, just like the programs are really separate, and that there's a lot of friction between the two. Does that make sense? So um, if you were working with someone who was alcoholic and also was using another mind-altering substance, we would just uh, send them all to AA. But if they were in NA, um, you know, and they also have alcoholism, a lot of them got cleaned from their drugs but were drinking because it wasn't the same thing and they weren't getting in as much trouble. Why? Because it's a shorter lifespan to be addicted from something other than alcohol. With alcohol, thank you, God, I can be an addict for 30 years before I have chronic uh, symptoms. But I do cocaine and I'm gone in three. I do meth and I'm gone in three, six months. Does that make sense? So a lot of us who are alcoholic or our primary drug is alcohol can function for a long period of time while we're in, in active addiction. Does that make sense? So what we know of the research now, and this is really exciting, is that the same modalities that we used in systems, in psychotherapy, in social services, and in cognitive therapies work for both alcoholics and those who are other than alcoholic. So both for dual diagnosis as well as those who are addicted to a drug uh, other than alcohol. So those are beginning to, we're coming back together. Part of why we're coming back together is how many people do you think are not multi-addicted? If you know your clients. I don't know, but I don't know a garden variety drug addict or alcoholic by themselves anymore. Maybe some older folks are, right? So it's time to dismantle some of those prejudices that we have because we sure have a whole bunch of them, don't we? You guys are so nice. <laughs> okay. So um, similar, the good news is similar modalities work. And what I'm proposing is that there needs to be an integration of both uh, research and practice with, uh, with what we've been hearing for a long time. A drug is a drug is a drug. The amount of time that it's going to take me to go from zero to 90 is different. Whether I end up in jail sooner is different. However, what happens to my body, to my life, and to my family, to my psyche is not different. It's not different. And we really need to harness those resources and that research in the same way. So uh, the proposed that is happening now, we've done a lot of uh, qualitative research, a lot of stories. Um, we've done some focus groups on this work. We've talked to people who work in the field. And uh, we need to move forward to doing some joint quantitative, quantitative story um, research. So from a system perspective, Addiction, substance abuse, uh, chemical dependency, and alcoholism are intertwined and are the same beast. Some may have some longer teeth. Some may take a little longer. 
Uh, however, the majority of the situations are very similar. And remission and recovery is very similar. Um, I remember working, uh, was leading a chemical dependency unit uh, when those programs became um, famous, you know, those 28-day programs. Why were they 28 days? You remember? Because that's how much insurance paid for. It had nothing to do with what it would take us to do a good program. Insurance says, we will pay for 28 days of inpatient. Guess what we did? We designed a plethora of 28-day programs all over the country. Pretty ones, too. I led one in Key West. Oh, my God. Everybody thought, oh, where the boys are. They came where the boys are in the Cuban to kind of uh, chill out and detox and then play, not to really get clean and sober. Um, but, you know, it was okay. Uh, you know, you know, in recovery, you just put in a seed, and you don't know where that seed's going to grow, and we'll see what happens. But what began to happen is that um, programs really segregated folks, and from a systems perspective, it didn't make sense. Like, for example, when you did, um, how many of you were part of or worked in a family program? No? Yeah? What would happen? You have one weekend. The family comes from one weekend. Tell me how that makes sense. It makes as much sense as a 28-day recovery program. <laughs> right? It's crazy, but we did it. I was part of it. I bought the Kool-Aid. I did it. Yeah, I drank it. I did it. And uh, so what happens is that um, we began to realize that, um, not began to realize, we segregated and we would not give the family the kind of energy and time that a family needs. Actually, what the research says now and what a lot of clinicians are doing now is really adding the same time of family work to individual work. Does that make sense? Person and environment. And sometimes you just work, this is systems theory, if you just work with the family, whether the addict or alcoholic is not there, guess what happens? A lot of people get healthy. And they don't promote or add to the addiction. Does that make sense? Because they start breaking the dynamics that keep addiction alive. So really the number one patient for alcohol and drug abuse, is the family. And we've never done that before. I, 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 really, we, we bring them in for the weekend. Maybe we'll have a counseling session or two. But we don't make them the focus of the treatment. We make, like addiction does, and like addicts and alcoholics, we need to be the center of attention one more time. We are the one with the problem. No, we don't need that. We need to be part of, you know, a family member among family members. Right? Well, that's what's happening in family systems. They're saying the family needs as much focus as the addict or alcoholic. And it's a huge contributor to, to remission, long-term remission, and recovery. Because they help to identify the symptoms a lot sooner. You begin to get a heads up way before the relapse happens. So the dynamics of recovery, just like the dynamics of addiction, happen at the individual level, at the family level, and at the environmental level. So at the individual level, what begins to happen is kind of a wake-up call to the body, the mind, and the spirit. And this person has an opportunity to move forward without substances in their body. 
Guess what begins to happen then? After the honeymoon. What begins to happen? What do you see? Anything? Yeah, somebody's going, yeah. What begins to happen? Uh, I, uh, I was sexually abused by my dad for nine years. Between the ages of five and whatever. Um, I'm in a domestic violence situation. Um, I can't sleep. I have panic attacks now. Right? I, all those things. Not that those things cause the addiction, but man, addiction really medicates well. Medicates well. So whatever it is that's underneath us, there's the biological component. Other people have abuse, and they don't become alcoholics and addicts. They may abuse it, but they don't become lifelong learners like we are, right? We are lifelong learners, right? But those of us who have the combination of the genetic predisposition and have this disease, and then have trauma, and I don't know about you, but there was a trauma convention and a healthy families convention. Guess how many people showed up to the healthy families convention? <laughs> Two. <laughs> the rest of us were packed into another room. Then the family begins to have an opportunity to change their roles, to change their dynamics, to give up some of that burden of having to do it all, or the resentments, all of that work, begins to allow everyone to take responsibility, begins to grow, and the environment begins to change. At the dinner table, around finances, around the marital bed, around the rearing of our children. And then what begins to happen? Hey, you've been gone for 20 years, now you want to tell me how to raise these kids? I had wonderful partners want to take their partners out of treatment. How many of you have had that? Why? They're going to too many AA meetings, and now they're telling me everything that they want to do. They've been gone for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 15 years, 5 years, and now, guess what? They want to be part of the family. And I had it all under control. I had it all figured out. Well, he was passed out in front of the, uh, on the, land, on the lawn there. And everybody went by. So increased risk for uh, addiction and increased benefits for addiction, from addiction. One, family history. So if you have a family history, grandparent or parent, it can usually skips a generation sometimes. Guess what? You, you are at the secondary level of prevention, which means you are more likely to get the disease than someone who is doesn't have a family member. So that's really important to teach our kids, is it not? Early, before they start doing all that stuff that we all did, right? Isolation, right? Isolation is a really, really important part of how um, we are at risk of not only addiction, but also relapse when we get sober, and trauma. And this involves all kind of trauma. And I don't know about you, but 
maybe my worldview is skewed between my life and over the last 35 years, any client that I work with, there's a lot of it out there. And we're either acting it out or we're working it out. Those are the two choices. It doesn't go away. And it's housed in the body. So we have a lot of issues around that. Panic, lack of sleep, night sweats, not being able to, be, to have sex, or having so much sex to numb out, whatever those things are, right? Not being able to have relationships, being a relationship addict. It doesn't matter. We just keep going with all the ways we cope. So I, I like to use a strength perspective. So if you have a family history of addiction, if you look at that as a strength as opposed to a weakness, what that gives you is a source of support because many of us have recovering people in our family. So when you have someone with a history of addiction, ask them, who's in recovery in your family? Chances are they have a cousin or an uncle or a brother or a sister or a parent who's in recovery. That's a way to use that as a strength. Those of us who isolate can begin to use that time to practice mindfulness, to journal, right, to pray. So look at those things and begin to find the strength within that. And then spiritually, how do you begin to explore with someone uh, beyond it's the God of your understanding, but let's say the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Give me a break. The Lord's Prayer is Christian. I'm okay. I worship the Palestinian brown Jew. I'm okay with that. But lots of people, <laughs> lots of people are not. And particularly at the beginning, we don't know what we believe, and a lot of us reject things just because we're rebellious. And, and for me, it's because what religion did in my family and to women was totally unacceptable to me, right? So I had to fight, and when I first got into recovery, I would change, and many of you did this, I think, I would change every he to she in what you would read, and thank God, I, uh, uh, Casey Brady always laughs at me when I tell my story, because I always say, and these wonderful guys, because I went to the other side of town with a briefcase and a suit saying I was there for my clients. Um, and these guys were so wonderful, they would say, keep coming back and here, have some pie. <laughs> because they thought I was in the middle of withdrawal. I was crazy, right? <laughs> have some pie. So they always bring pie when I celebrate my birthday. So precursors to relapse. These are the kinds of things that happen for us to be aware of and to teach our clients. We begin to have uncomfortable emotions. And here is the program, HALT. Hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. If you have two of those, you're in trouble. If you have all four of those, you're this close away from a drink or a drug. Period. Period. Uh, then we get into relationships. Now, relationships are hard for everybody. They're hard. Two human beings with a brain, with a different family, with a different culture. And now you're trying to share bills and kids or, you know, you're, you're uh, kind of um, 
decided that you and your partner are going to go ahead and have a wedding and, and, and then your family member doesn't come because they don't like the gender that you chose so they don't like uh, who you are or whatever those things are. And imagine all those things that begin to blow up in relationships, right? Or maybe you were sexually assaulted and what you were using, you were a sex bunny. And now that you're not using, guess what? There's nobody home down there. It's gone. It's a basement. There's no activity. Shut down. Gone. Don't even look at it. And if you don't look at it, why are you asking somebody else to look at it? Right? So we shut down because every time that we become sexual, we get triggered. Or every time that he or she gets in front of me, uh, I, I get relieved that abused. So those issues begin to happen. Physically, uh, a lot of us have anxiety and panic attacks. And then, because we're not anesthetized anymore, guess what? We begin to find our aches and pains that we didn't know we had. So now we know that we had this wrong and that wrong. If I had a dime for every Every pigeon that I ever had, we call them that pigeons in Florida, not sponsies, pigeons. Why do you call them pigeons? Because they shit on you all the time. <laughs> Hello? Oh, I didn't call you. Why didn't you call me before you drag? Oh, because you talk to me. I love you. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. No, no, right? So um, all kinds of things happen. All kinds of things happen. Uh, we begin to get um, prideful and overconfident. And this is mostly for, you, you see them at every meeting. They love the program. Everybody's going, oh my God, I've been here 20 years and I have never felt the way you do. <laughs> oh, you're such a gift to this group. Three to six months relapse. Three to six months relapse, count. Sad, but true. Because they're overconfident. They're not humble. They're not asking for help. They think they got it. And you never get this. I don't care how long you're sober. Never. This is a state of grace, and all we do is take action and release the outcome. Right? Spirituality is foreign to us, or... We went to spirituality or religion as a way to get sober or stay clean. So you also find people that become overly involved with church and religion. Not anything wrong with that, except it's not a supplement for recovery. Just like therapy is not a supplement for recovery. Just like recovery is not therapy and it's not church. We need all of it. We're high-maintenance people. What part of that don't we understand? Plus, we're beautiful, and we have kind, loving hearts most of the time. And when we don't, we make amends. Right? I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. How am I doing there? Hey, man, I'm doing good. A lot of us surface depression... Why? Because we were medicating with the depression. Were we not? Yeah. 
So you get clean and sober, and then you have medical, psychological, and spiritual uh, life challenges. Um, some of that has to do with untreated trauma. Not all of us are traumatized, but a lot of us are. And if you're a woman in this country, one in five of you have experienced domestic violence, and one in six has been raped or sexually assaulted. Period. Statistics. And if you're a young person on a college campus, your chances of getting raped in the United States as a first-year student are one in three. So Me Too is not a made-up thing. When we stand up, we just don't tell you about it. One, because you can make fun of us. You're not going to believe us. Then you're going to see us as a victim. All of that stuff. Thank God the world is changing, and we, for the first time ever, we've had consequences. When people tell the folks who are guilty are having consequences, they're like getting fired. I've never seen that in my whole life. They get fired. Oh, you lost your show? You lost your theater company? I mean, I love Kevin Spacey. I love House of Cards. And then he disappeared. And we found out what was going on. So just like what we know with alcoholics, when we have issues, a lot of us mask really well. I am a really good masker. I, I really I really am. So here's some strategies for stage. Um, in order for us, for our clients, and for our sponsees, we must learn how to overcome anxiety. Anxiety is a huge trigger for using. I don't know about you, but if you remember the first time when you wanted a drink and you had it, what did you do? You exhaled. Take a long, deep breath right now without alcohol. Put a big hands over your belly. Breathe that into that belly. You know, that one we try to hide. This is that one. It's time to show it off, right? Because that's where the Buddha, Jesus belly, Muhammad belly lives, right there. Okay, so pull that out. Breathe all the way in until it pops right out, and then breathe out all the way. Because when we're anxious, guess where we breathe from? Right here. And guess what that tells my neuro, neuropsych, uh, neurobiology? What happens? You're in trouble. A cyber tiger is going to come in the door. We're in danger. Then I become hypervigilant. And all that cortisol that gives us this belly to begin with, um, and all those uh, juices begin to flow, and we get more anxious. So if you learn to breathe from the belly and exhale from the belly, it tells your brain that you're not in trouble and that you're okay. Basic stuff that we don't do. Basic, basic stuff. Trauma responses. We get triggered a lot. Somebody tells a story. We see a film. Um, I went with my sponsee to see, um, I think it was Beautiful Boy. Yeah. She's been a mess ever since. 30, 32 years clean and sober. Sometimes that's, they're ready. They're ready to deal with that and clean that little piece up. But that was buried way there. So you just never know. Stress management, there's good stress, you know this, and there's chronic, not so good stress, right? So good stress is you get excited, you got a new job, you're doing something great, right? You, you hear a cap casa as opposed to whatever it is, whatever else you do on Fridays, right? And negative stress is that chronic piece of it doesn't ever get better. Nothing is going to change. No matter what you do, you're not ever going to get through what it is that you're being asked to do. You can't pay the mortgage. 
I mean, I'm thinking about all those federal workers right now, all those government workers right now. I don't know about you, but who can live beyond two paychecks? Think about that. So can you imagine that? I can't. I mean, it's, it's one of these surreal pieces. So when our clients or sponsees lose a job or get evicted or they go through a divorce, whatever those life situations are, they're really vulnerable at that point. So some things that really help is um, stress management and meditation. I was really honored to be taught meditation by a really short uh, Vietnamese monk named Thich Nhat Hanh. And I was working with Vietnam vets um, who had, at that time it was called uh, war fatigue. It's now called PTSD. We didn't call it PTSD then. I tell you, I'm old. I was 20. I'm 64. And uh, he learned uh, while he was in Vietnam that Vietnam vets were killing themselves at a faster rate once they came home uh, than, uh, than they got lost in the war. Right, it's happening with the same Afghanistan folks too. And he decided that his mission was to come work with Vietnam vets. So he worked at all the units where there were Vietnam vets who had either killed a buddy or killed someone in their family in a fugue from PTSD. And he taught mindfulness practice. And he was not very well known. He's very old now. He's 88. He's uh, almost dying. But if you're not read Thich Nhat Hanh, highly recommend um, he does a beautiful job uh, comparing um, Christianity and Buddhism uh, in a beautiful way. EMDR. How many of you know about EMDR? Yeah. You know what happened? This psychology student in Florida, I was at Nova University then, um, had to do a dissertation, and she discovered, she was a student, that if you did I, I desensitization movement, that uh, things happen, things change really quickly. And people thought she was nuts. So she asked like 10 of us who were doing therapy if we would practice. Florida was amazing. Cranial sacral uh, happened there. Also the cocaine cowboys were there. <laughs> it was just, we were just so, so amazing. So uh, EMDR is now, has research, has certification, it's become part of what we do. But it was really one of those like, you want me to do what? This is weird. And what it does, it really works if you do one single trauma at a time. You can't do multiple traumas. So I had a car wreck. It's about that car wreck, right? So sometimes those who have complex trauma, it doesn't work for. But those who have simple trauma, it works beautifully. Comprehensive self-care. I do a workshop called Beyond Kale and Pedicures. And I call it that because we think that self-care is taking a day off. It's not. Self-care is comprehensive. And it takes an incredible amount of commitment. It takes an incredible amount of commitment and it's individualized. We're not McDonald's. So what self-care for you may be very different than self-care for me. And we talk about self-care in our field, but we don't need to teach anybody how to do it. We don't help them do a plan. And guess what? I'm proposing that we put it in their performance choices. What are you going to do to self-care? What is the agency going to do for self-care? It's a partnership. You coming in here and at my center, you see your third rib vagina of the week. The last one, a 14-year-old, right? Or you saw the person without teeth. 
How many times can you see that and not get traumatized? Never mind if you had any trauma of your own. So we were responsible to create in the workspace spaces where folks can take a break and get some support for being able to take care of themselves. And then we need to figure out what they need to do. So it's a partnership as well. So burnout, if you have burnout, take a couple of days off, go away, it works. If you have compassion fatigue, you really need a little more time. And if you have secondary trauma, you need help. And from secondary trauma, we go to impairment. That's the continuum, burnout, impairment, suicide. My research has been in professional impairment and the impact of trauma on the helper. And that's the continuum. So you, just like addiction, you can get off at any part of the, of the elevator, on any floor. But that's really the continuum. Burnout, which we all have. Even accounts get burnout around April. Oh, my God. Right? Right? All the way to impairment, where we make really stupid choices. Uh, one of the two clients that I lost uh, to suicide while I was working with him was a wonderful man in Lexington who um, ran a beautiful uh, organization here that helped people, and he became involved with a client of his who was a sexual abuse survivor. And uh, when that sexual abuse survivor got healthy, they sued the agency and left him. And he really thought he, they were in love. I mean, this is how delusional we get, right? So she was reenacting her abuse, and he was reenacting her abuse with her. And he killed himself because he couldn't tolerate it. So the end piece is suicide. And that happens, that happens a lot. Address history of trauma. And here is, here is the beautiful bucket that we get from being in recovery. I don't know any other illnesses that offers long-term support for those of us who are life learners. Long-term service. You know what happens when you're serving. I had a new sponsee come in that has whipped my butt. I have to get a little healthier because of her. I do. I do. Uh, participation in 12-step meetings. How many old-timers do you know that don't go to meetings? How do they do that? They're a jerk. <laughs> That's how they do that. Just because you're dry doesn't mean you're sober. Doesn't mean you have any quality of life. And guess what happens when you relapse and you're a long-term, uh, you have a long-term sobriety and you relapse? Your chances of suicide go up 75%. So if you're a long-timer and you're not going counseling and you're not going to meetings and you're not sharing meetings and you're not being humble by being there with the one that just got out of treatment or is still in treatment, guess what? Your disease is the better part of your brain. And it would eventually take the better part of your body and would eventually take your spirit away. So here's some references. Um, the work of Sarah Smock and Sarah Blake Blakesley is what I use for um, interventions around uh, psychotherapy and talking to you about the systems piece. Um, if you have not read Gorski, G-O-R-S-K-I-T, 
He started relapse prevention. I mean, he is the relapse prevention guy. So um, I think it was in the 70s when he started to talk about how to do relapse prevention. And then uh, this guide was just published uh, a, a while ago, but it's still really good, the 1986. Okay, any questions? So good? Keep you awake? Thank you, Marta. Thank wait, wait, you. I'm not done. I still got four minutes, don't I? Okay. You do? No, I'm actually, actually, you've got seven minutes. There you go. Well, I had this goal on my bucket list was to write a memoir. And I, I just wrote the last poem for it. It's called Cradle by Skeletons. It's coming on my 65th birthday. And there was one poem I tried to write for the last year that I couldn't write. And I made the goal that I would write it before Cap Casa. And it happened three days ago. So I'm going to share this with you as a closing. It's called Addiction. You mended the burn marks on my back and the slaps across my face. The disjoint accept them and you rocked my colicky infant. You gave rhythm to my frozen hips after he took my virginity without my permission. And you greased my bones so that I could dance with abandon. You allowed my breath to return to my belly and you brought back giggles and laughter. You stood in for courage while I was terrified and gave me confidence when I had none. You melted the incessant aggressions poured on me on my psyche daily, and you unblocked my aching jaws and helped me to claim my voice. As time passed, you all know this story, you became a demanding and unforgiving captor. You abducted my freedom, and your jealousy became my prison. I awoke with a shame running down my arm and with drops of blood tainting my medicine. John Walker lost his luster. Rum no longer tasted like sugar. And Remy Martin was no longer sophisticated. I often fell to my knees when riding horse. And I lost my vision with my visions with peyote and pure white snow turned to darkness. Your betrayal was brutal. I'm still recovering after 37 years of goodbyes. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret.